0: we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast. Up the Duff is a podcast for fertility seekers and those who are curious about procreation. Join us as we speak to experts and hear from real people on their fertility journeys. We ask the hard questions and help them navigate to solutions on the sometimes bumpy road that it is to parenthood. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank this season's sponsor, ES Fertility. They are setting the new standard in ingestibles for reproductive system health for both males and females. Make sure you check them out at earsfertility.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Up the Duff podcast. Today, I'm joined by nutritionist Monique Cormac. We are talking the two-week wait, which is such a nerve-wracking time for so many people, whether you're trying at home or whether you're undergoing assisted reproduction. I chat to Monique about what foods are helpful during the two-week wait, what are some of the things you should avoid, does anything really help with implantation, and yes, we take a deep dive on beetroot juice specifically, and also, are there any supplements or nutrients that we can take or shouldn't take during this time? This is a super delicious and juicy, yes, pun intended, episode, so let's get into it. Welcome, Monique. Thank you so much
1: for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to chat to you about the two-week wait, uh, which is the time period between when you either transfer an embryo or have successful intercourse and actually have a conception. It's that anxious two-week wait period post-ovulation or post-embryo transfer that a lot of couples um, experience. And if you don't know what the two-week wait is, then I guess that's a good thing because you haven't been struggling to try at this point in time. So um, my first question to you, and I feel like I probably just answered that, but um, what is the two-week wait?
1: So yeah, um, as you've just sort of described, the two-week wait is that kind of like weird limbo period, I guess you might want to call it, between the point at which, you know, if you're um, trying to conceive with intercourse, you actually do the deed and um, the sperm is uh, placed in the vagina, uh, for want of a better description, or um, if you're doing um, assisted reproduction, um, IVF, um, you have the transfer of an embryo. Um, And it's that period between when um, that happens and you do your pregnancy test, which is approximately two weeks later, although for the veterans of assisted reproduction who've done multiple transfers, I know it's not exactly two weeks, it's more like 11 days or something like that, but it gets abbreviated to be the two-week wait, so until you get to do um, the pregnancy test. And it's just got that really big emphasis because um, we know But like physiologically, that's when implantation or attachment of your embryo is going to occur. So that's basically the embryo has to attach itself to the side of the uterus so it can actually stick and stay and then establish a relationship with that uterus and obviously go on to become, you know, a a clinical pregnancy. Um, So, yeah, it's a it can be often a very tense time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this is something we spoke actually in detail about with uh, Lucy Lyons as well. So we were talking more from a lifestyle perspective and emotional wellbeing perspective about surviving the two-week wait. So I'm super excited to dive into some Mm -hmm. foods and some of the nutritional things that we can do during the two-week wait. So speaking of food, what are some of the foods that you typically recommend people consume during the two-week wait?
1: So um, I guess I'd probably start by saying that I make sort of uh, two groups of recommendations during the two-week wait. And the first recommendation uh, would be like that, um, you know, we do recommend some nutritional interventions or nutritional support options for the two-week wait. But I just want to make it clear from the beginning that the other recommendation I always make during the two-week wait is more to do with um, mental and emotional well-being and that the two-week wait is only two weeks and we're often not able to make significant um, changes to our health in two weeks, and that includes during the two-week wait. So while I do recommend some nutritional interventions, I also tend to recommend not focusing too much on specific foods for every single meal and, um, I guess, having some soul food and enjoying yourself as distracting yourself, maybe not enjoying yourself, um, as well as having those nutritional interventions. So I just want to make that very clear. Mm. Um, But the foods that I do recommend when we look at those nutritional support um, mechanisms, um, so the groups of foods we're looking at are things that uh, are trying to basically make your uterus the most receptive that it can be um, to that little embryo. And things that are important there is that we want to have a really thick and healthy endometrial lining. So the the um, temporary tissues that grow in the endometrium, that thick lining, that's where the embryo has to implant. So we're looking at um, foods that might support the thickness of that lining, um, the proper development of that lining. We're also looking at foods that um, may help to reduce things that may intervene in implantation. So, for example, um, inflammation, chronic inflammation may play a role in maybe uh, discouraging the embryo from implanting. So looking at things that uh, may help to reduce chronic inflammation. So that's kind of what we're trying to do. So some of the foods that I would recommend to help achieve those goals, uh, firstly, would be looking at um, our nitrate-rich foods. And this is a group of foods, um, and I'm talking about, unfortunately, nitrates in vegetables and not the um, artificial nitrites that are used to preserve bacon. So I'm sorry, <laughs> bacon lovers, <laughs> I'm referring to plant foods. Um, so your nitrate-rich foods. Um, so uh, top recommendation there would be um, beetroot, but that's purely because, uh, as I will explain, that's where the body of evidence tends to lie. Um, But there are also foods like rocket, spinach, um, cress, celery, which are also nitrate-rich vegetables, which, I mean, theoretically you would also group there. Um, We want to also look at our um, inflammation-reducing foods. So that is also just fruit and vegetables for their high antioxidant intake. Um, Omega-3, because we know that that's such a powerful anti-inflammatory and something that's really beneficial to carry through to pregnancy. Um, And then um, the other food I wanted to mention were um, whole grains because there's also a little bit of research there looking at um, whole grain consumption prior to conceiving um, and it actually may improve the thickness of the endometrial lining. And um, for those who have been trying to conceive for some time, particularly those doing IVF, you've probably heard about or researched or jumped on a forum or talked to somebody about how to get um, I thicker endometrial lining. So um, there is some research for whole grains um, having a role there. So those are sort of the top food recommendations that I would make.
0: Yeah, I love that point about whole grains because so often I find a lot of my fertility clients are contemplating or going gluten-free and I do think Mm -hmm. that that whole grain intervention, especially for endometrial thickness, is a really great one and probably a really good justification for someone who isn't celiac to continue eating um, Mm -hmm. whole grain foods. So I love that you mentioned that. It's so important. Now, you did mention beetroot, and I know I've read some of these research papers as well, and it's super exciting that there's actually research on a food. It's so rare for that to act, to happen. Um, so what is the mechaniz- mechanism behind beetroot? You mentioned that it's rich in nitrates. Um, how How is beetroot working? And also how can we get more beetroot into our diet? Some recipe inspo would be amazing. So –
1: um. The beetroot and the nitrates, um, the way that works is that um, nitrates in the body and the way they're metabolised in the body, they're actually metabolised at several different points, but let's maybe not go that deep. Um, But basically, the way nitrates can act on tissues is that tissues can convert nitrates to something called nitric oxide. Now, (laughs) when I first learned about this, um, learned about nitric oxide and nitrates, it kind of sounds like something to do with cars, (laughs) but it's not. It's to do with humans. Um, and what nitric oxide does basically is it's a vaso or vasodilator so it helps to um, dilate the blood vessels and you're like okay well why would that be a good thing and essentially that improves the flow of oxygenated blood and nutrients around the body now a highly vascularized uh Uh, nutrient rich bit of tissue would be the tissue inside the endometrium the lining where you want the embryo to implant so the putting that all together beetroots high in nitrates nitrates nitric oxide dilates the blood vessels the nutrient and oxygen rich blood gets delivered around the body to the tissues better and in particular it's those tissues where the embryo is going to implant that may benefit from that and therefore it's going to support implantation. So there's like a little process by which, you know, we just think about beetroot and then how it's going to have that effect. I should also mention that there's actually beetroot is a sports supplement. So this research on beetroot dilating the blood vessels and helping with performance, I guess, is also looked at in that, um, I guess, sports nutrition um, area as well. So it's not just this one little bit of research we have in the fertility space um, now, the second part of that was how can we get more beetroot in our diet so the research in the fertility space did use a beetroot juice um, <laughs> really oddly they don't actually give you much detail about how they made the juice, which I find really strange, like did they use two beetroots did they use one did they use a teaspoon of beetroot i don't know um, so it 's a bit strange it um, it says that maybe it's around 140 mils of juice. Um, And in the study on fertility, it was actually a beetroot, watermelon, and ginger juice. So if you are a juicer and you wanted to sort of toe the line with the recommendation, the research in the fertility space, uh, you could uh, make your own juice or potentially find somebody to make you a juice if you find juicing a bit tedious. Um, For those of us who might not be fanatics about juicing, uh, other ways that I would like. I like to eat beetroot and maybe you might like to as well. Um, I quite like roasted beetroot, so just buying whole beetroot, also because it's a very low-fuss way of um using beetroot would simply be to um give beetroot a good scrub, pop it in rub it with extra virgin olive oil, roast it in the oven until it's incredibly tender, and then maybe serve it as a really simple salad. So some walnuts, um a little bit of rocket, which is also a nitrate-rich food, so you get two. Um, dressed with like a really good like caramelised balsamic and some flaky salt or something like that. So like a really simple like roasted beetroot salad. It's also good grated raw so you can add it to slaw. Um, um, and if neither of those appeal to you, you can actually cook it into sauces as well. So, for example, you could grate some into like a pasta, a tomato-based pasta sauce and actually... Um, have it that way Um, and I guess you can't forget about the good old burger right I guess you could have it on a burger as well
0: yeah tinned beetroot I guess would be like a really easy non-messy way um, of consuming it I quite like a borscht I think it's like a eastern European soup um, and they use basically the juice in a soup form Yeah, yeah, it's super yummy and they usually put some meat through it as well and sour cream and, yeah, Mm. big fan of Mm. borscht. Um, You mentioned watermelon and ginger. Do you think, so with that study, did they pull out whether it was the beetroot, the watermelon or the ginger or whether it was a combination of all three of those fruits and vegetables and, I guess, roots,
1: herbs? Yeah, so... I found this really interesting, so there was actually two studies so the first one was like this little research update that was published a couple of years ago, and they didn't really sort of talk about much besides mentioning the beetroot and that it may you know improve blood flow, et cetera et cetera, which is what we've already covered um but in the more recently um, published update uh, looking at this second sort of trial of uh, this beetroot watermelon ginger juice. They also mentioned some properties of watermelon and ginger, which I think is worth mentioning, um, particularly as we're also coming into summer in Australia mm. right now. And, you know, watermelon, it's a bit of a summery food, and ginger, it's, you know, I think it's nice to have more than one option. So um, with watermelon, they did um, mention that watermelon is actually. Uh, high in a compound which isn't found in many foods called um, L-citrulline. Now, uh, just very briefly, L-citrulline, the the way it's absorbed and used in the body, it increases um, the levels of um, L-arginine, which is another amino acid, and nitric oxide. It improves the availability of nitric oxide in the body. So it may have sort of like this additive sort of enhancing effect to the beetroot. Um, in that it may also improve the dilation of the blood vessels. So, um, And as the paper does rightly point out, L-citrulline isn't naturally found in high amounts in a lot of foods, although you can get it as a supplement. Um, So the watermelon may have this sort of additive sort of beneficial impact. And then the ginger, I think ginger is amazing and probably one of the best researched um, uh, spices uh, that we know has really active compounds in it called um, gingerols. So um, ginger rolls have been shown, not just for fertility, but in, you know, sort of our other applications as well, um, to have this um, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, um, sort of uh, anti-platelet aggregation effects. So, again, having that lowering inflammation, improving blood flow effect. So it might not just be the beetroot and there may be sort of that additive benefit of having all of those things. I guess cooking wise, you probably don't have to have them all together, though. Like you could have watermelon for a snack. You could put ginger in your stir fry and you could have beetroot some other time. Like it's not necessary, I think, to have them all in the same meal. But having all of them in your diet may have those additive effects of giving you different compounds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love I love ginger as well. Um for fertility, and I think it's one of those traditional Chinese medicine herbs as well that have been used for centuries. It's you know it's warming, and we know that being warm is so important mm-hmm. um, during the two-week wait. And yeah, like you said, antiplatelet and inflammatory. It's really really good one. We know it's safe in pregnancy because it's given for morning sickness. Um, so yeah, lots and lots of ginger. Yum. <laughs> um, okay, so. Are there any foods that should be avoided during the two-week wait?
1: So I think this is a little bit, it's a bit of a grey area. Um, I think some people, once they have, um, particularly with IVF, um, once they have an embryo transfer, there's that saying, "Poo poo, pregnant until proven otherwise. So there are people who might feel like, oh, I've got to just act as if I'm pregnant straight away and so they might start following pregnancy food safety guidelines and being like okay i can't eat any of the foods that we can't eat during pregnancy so really common examples would be like your um, your, on your deli meats so cold deli meats like ham um soft cheeses um all of that now if you actually technically look at the process of implantation, which we won't be covering in this podcast because we've been here for a while, but the process of implantation actually involves several stages of the embryo first, um, you know, um, adhering, attaching, and then actually borrowing and uh, basically establishing a blood supply and network or a connection with um, the, the mother. Really, technically, when you first have that embryo transfer, you aren't, you aren't sort of exchanging nutrients um, and, you know, the placenta, nothing like that is established immediately. So in terms of foods to avoid, at the you know, in the two-week wait, I, I do encourage caution, like, of course, be sensible with foods. Like it's probably not the time to go like um, <laughs> like oyster farming for a week or like on some kind of like find the best um, steak tartare in Australia kind of Binge or something like that. Like, there's no need to go out of your way to eat foods that we wouldn't recommend to keep consuming during pregnancy. However, there aren't too many things that you need to completely avoid in the two-week wait because you're not technically pregnant with that transfer and exchange of nutrients between, um, you know, the the pregnant mother and the embryo actually going on. Um, the main things I would avoid in the two-week wait would number one be alcohol. So mm-hmm. we. This, you know, there is some evidence connecting alcohol consumption to lower chances of implantation. So, absolutely, I wouldn't have any alcohol. Um, I would be cautious about, you know, food safety within reason. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of, I'm a bit, re- I wasn't relaxed, but I think that we need to be a bit pragmatic um, and supportive of people during the two week wait. Like it's already a difficult time um and i don't want to encourage this idea that one bad meal or like cheap yeah. meal or whatever lingo you want to use is somehow going to affect your transfer outcomes because that's yeah. actually highly unlikely um yeah. and i i think that that is a really common misconception and i actually hate those kind of misleading pieces of advice that sometimes you see
0: yeah. um i think our chat with Lucy Lyons was very much so along on similar lines um, to that piece of advice, Monique, about reducing the, you know, reducing the stress, but also nothing that you eat or don't eat is going to impact that pregnancy. I mean, I know we're talking about foods for the two week wait, and, you know, some of the research around that, but at the end of the day, having a cheat meal or having a coffee in the morning really isn't going to um, impact that outcome greatly. And I think it's so important that yeah, you know reduce the stress and the blame and the guilt around foods as well. I did touch on coffee there a little bit. What are your thoughts on caffeine and coffee? Um, in the two week way, I yeah, I've
1: kind of as you just gave the example of like it's I don't think, um, unless you fall into a very small category of people, and I'll explain that in a second, that it's necessary to um eliminate coffee or caffeine. Um, during the two-week wait Um I would do it within reason so I think you know sticking to the pregnancy and breastfeeding uh, recommended limit which is 200 milligrams of caffeine a day uh, is sort of a sensible benchmark that I would set for most people um, that is still a reasonable amount of caffeine like you could certainly have your morning coffee and I mean depending on how you make that morning coffee you'll likely also be able to manage some you know a cup of tea and some a few squares of chocolate in the afternoon as well like it's not you know it's not an unreasonable amount of caffeine so i sort of i'm not i'm relatively relaxed about having some um the only you know sort of exceptions i guess i would make there would be is there some reason unique to that person that we would think that any caffeine intake may be an issue now this may be um sort of like i guess personality mood dependent so does do does caffeine do awful things to you do you feel incredibly stressed and anxious um it may be sort of physiological so if you have um you know a source of caffeine do you tend to sort of uh, does it really affect your bowels so some people are really sensitive to that so that's not great that's not fun and also like if it's encouraging loose bowels and it's affecting nutrient absorption mm-hmm. um you know or perhaps um medical history wise you've had a significant history of recurrent pregnancy loss now we're sort of getting very niche here but there may be certain times where we go okay look you know you would know I know you know that in you know recent years there have been these suggestions that we don't know what the safe level of caffeine is in pregnancy um, which I do think has been communicated in an incredibly fear-mongering way uh, by some people again but you know um there may be certain people where there is just this incredibly complex medical history and they don't react well to caffeine in the first place but yeah this is such a subset small subset of people and there's always the exception but my general view is that look for most people it's about you have to you have to be able to survive this it's you have to be able to live through this it's not just about putting stuff on your plate, you have to get up every day and function while you wait for that blood test and phone call and while you go to the toilet and check your underwear 7,000 times a day to make sure you're not bleeding. Like if you have a morning coffee and that's how your life rolls, then that's how your life rolls.
0: Yeah, that's such good advice. It's, yeah, really solid, stable advice and like you said, there's always the exception and that's why it's so important to seek Mm. individualised advice. Um, particularly if you are in this, you know, 1% or 2% of people who have more complicated pregnancies and more complicated um, medical histories. So, yeah, I think that you put that perfectly, Monique. (laughs) Um, Okay, good. (laughs) uh, So supplements and nutrients. So generally people would have been taking their multi, maybe some other stuff prior to um, an embryo transfer or, you know, that Hopeful um, a la casa conception. Um, do you suggest people change anything about their supplement regime during the two-week wait? It depends. So if you
1: have been so look, if you've been doing IVF um, and you're on a pretty complex um, egg quality supplement regime, which uh, a lot of people are. If it's likely, if you have got more than one embryo to transfer and it is unlikely that you would be doing another egg retrieval, uh, I would usually look at the two-week wait time as a time where we might back off some supplements. So if it's unlikely that you're going to be doing an egg retrieval supplements that we've previously been using for egg quality, um, we're going to stop because you don't need them for an embryo transfer. Um, So I tend to sort of um, would back off in that respect. Uh, and then in terms of supplements, you know, I guess a good baseline, you'd be looking at making sure you're taking an adequate prenatal multivitamin, which hopefully you've already been doing. And then I'd be looking at probably omega-3 supplementation because that does really have some good um, evidence for pregnancy and also for reducing inflammation. Um, and then in terms of other supplements, um, there is some research for certain using some certain supplements in preparation for the two-week wait, which you'd actually often start before you get to the two-week wait so uh the ones i'm thinking of are things like um using vitamin e which isn't indicated for every single person Mm. who is going to experience implantation just making that clear um but for some people who it is indicated for um so uh, vitamin e supplementation is potentially um beneficial um we you could look at using um Things uh, sort of like I guess food-based supplements, like making sure you're frequently having ginger, for example, or yeah, there are there's some history of, um, and I know I get asked about this all the time is is whether to use L-arginine mm. um, as a supplement for implantation um, because uh, it is one of the compounds mentioned um, as possibly sort of like enhancing that blood flow. I'll be honest with you, I don't tend to use it. Um, I. Would just tend to rely on food sources of nitrates and look at that way of improving nitric oxide and blood flow. And I think also there's better evidence for um, vitamin E. Um, yeah. And I don't think all research in relation to L-arginine L- and fertility uh, is actually has actually been positive.
0: I do worry about um, L-Arginine and how oxidative it could potentially Mm. be as well. Mm -hmm. So if people are taking it and they do decide to take it, definitely pairing it with something like a vitamin C supplement to try and offset that oxidative stress that it could potentially cause. And the fact that, you know, if you are going to do a subsequent egg retrieval, Yeah, that oxidative stress Mm -hmm. and the damage it could cause um, to those egg follicles and egg quality potentially for that future retrieval. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm iffy about arginine. And then also if people have a history of um, warts um, or genital herpes as well, exacerbations Mm. of that virus, which is a nightmare if you're about to have an embryo transfer
1: yeah exactly so yeah I'm so I'm so glad we agree on that because yeah I just I have I'm not saying never but I'm saying it really needs to be the right circumstances to consider that I think we just need to be really careful uh unfortunately it is one that's very frequently mentioned and very popular sources of fertility tips um so I just want to flag that uh, that's we need to be careful. Um when I was sort of I mean I I get asked about embryo transfers and implantation and this all the time. Um and I just think you know overall we don't need too many supplements during the 2 week wait. Lots of them we want to start before the 2 week wait. Um the other supplements I just wanted to briefly touch on were a lot of people um often ask me about progesterone um mm. because uh, progesterone is a hormone that plays a role in Um, supporting the two-week wait. So we do need progesterone in the two-week wait to start to support a pregnancy. Now, if you're doing assisted reproduction, this is often given intravaginally through a pessary, which is so much fun. I've used several billion of those in my time. And so people often ask about supplements to raise progesterone levels. Now, most of these supplements, we would ideally want to be like, just need to stress that like if you think you have low progesterone, it's not just something you just think and try and do something about. Like you would actually try and establish medically that you do have it mm. um, and be engaging with your wider healthcare team. Like this isn't something you go, oh, I didn't, you know, it didn't work. I must have low progesterone. Like we, we need to actually have some sort of factual basis for understanding this. But in terms of supplements and progesterone, the things that I would look at would be um, vitamin C. Um, uh, zinc and vitamin B6, but just keeping in mind that some of these are often found in prenatal multivitamins and, you know, depending on your dietary intake and other medical factors, you may not need to go and suddenly start taking these in large amounts and doing so can actually be dangerous. But the zinc, B6, um, vitamin C may possibly have benefit for low progesterone, but low progesterone is not just a duck down and buy some supplements kind of thing
0: yeah does that make sense yeah that makes total sense it's very it's very because i mean the nutrients well the vitamins and minerals are essentially the precursors to progesterone Mm. um so you can provide the precursors but still at the end of the day you may not be making progesterone and you may just need that um pharmaceutical intervention i mean you especially you're not going to muck around in like we're talking about the two-week wait You, you know you don't have time to waste if you need that hormone You need it now. You're not going to wait for the precursors to all of a sudden miraculously come together and create more progesterone. Yeah. And I think the
1: way you said that, it totally highlights, I guess, um, it's like the two-week wait is probably my least favorite, favorite topic in that way, because um, I know a lot of people are curious about the two-week wait, but it definitely shouldn't be viewed as this time where suddenly you can commence particularly nutritional interventions, which when you look at research often take at least a few weeks, if not more, to have a benefit, um, it's not a time to suddenly start a lot of interventions. It's kind of a time to go, okay, I already have a plan in place. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, um, what's important? You know, apart from the dietary, yeah, apart from the dietary nitrates, I guess, where you're looking at that immediate effect on um vasodilation um the other ones are kind of things that you want to have going already
0: yeah yeah, couldn't agree more i was gonna ask with the dietary nitrates mm-hmm. how soon should you start is this something you should be starting after your transfer or after that natural conception um or should you be starting well and truly in your preconception care
1: i actually went into a bit of a hole. <laughs> trying to figure this out and trying to figure out if you really did have to have them daily because that's just the type of person I am um I think ideally we really should be having them earlier than the two-week wait maybe not on a daily basis but we want to be encouraging blood flow um low blood you know reducing blood pressure encouraging blood flow encouraging the transfer of oxygen and nutrients around the body before you get to the two-week wait because um Well, for one thing, the endometrial lining doesn't start growing in the two-week wait. It actually starts growing two weeks before that when you start making estrogen. So progesterone doesn't grow the lining of your uterus. Estrogen thickens the lining of your uterus. So if you're wanting to sort of work on even the lining, you need to start at least two weeks beforehand, at least start thinking about including some nitrate-rich foods. Um, In terms of following the research on beetroot which and enhancing implantation outcomes, they actually start from. They were looking at people doing um, assisted reproduction, and so they started from the day of the embryo transfer, um, and they continued the intervention until the day of the pregnancy test. And they actually did have it daily. Now, I did try and look up the um, the how long nitrates exert an effect in the body. Uh, so dietary nitrates um, have a half life um, of approximately five to eight hours. Okay. So I guess having nitrate rich foods daily. Yeah, I told you, I went into a real hole. Um, (laughs) um, uh, So having it daily, there does seem to be justification in doing that. For example, in the two week wait, when the embryo is there and you're trying to improve acidylation and blood flow, there does appear to be a scientific benefit to having the nitrates on the daily basis as they did in the study, because the compound that you're looking at increasing appears to not have a super long half-life, like I mean, actually, in chemistry, I think a half-life of eight hours is reasonable because I think some things only have a half-life of, like, an hour. So yeah. it's still, you know, it's doing a good thing. It's just that I see, you know, I can see how you would justify having nitrate-rich foods on a daily basis. Probably multiple times a day Ooh, Yeah, with that I kind mean, of
0: half-life. Yeah. <clears throat> If you want
1: to set a timer for having them at eight hour intervals like sort of paracetamol, you are welcome to do so. <laughs> probably don't advise that kind of militant uh dietary approach in the two week weight where you're stressed out of your mind but um yeah, certainly having them multiple times a day, and I think to be honest, that's the kind of like you don't have to have this like set thing that you have like four times a day or you have this set juice every day like think about nitrate rich foods as a category and go okay, I'm just going to add some of them to different meals across the day. So if you have yeah. your beetroot juice in the morning, you can have rocket with your dinner or, you know, you might have celery sticks with dip for your afternoon tea. I don't know. But you, you can use these foods at multiple times across the day. Like I said, like you can have the watermelon at, some, what, watermelon at one point of the day and beetroot at another. And then you can use I, – I mean, I love ginger too, so you can use ginger repeatedly, um, yeah. just taking that more relaxed approach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that you took such a deep dive into the half life and figuring out, you know, the duration oh, no. and and it's is it something that you can continue during your pregnancy as well? I mean, beetroot's so high in antioxidants and so, yeah, I mean, you,
1: you you can actually. I think there was some research looking at nitrates in pregnancy as well, which I won't um, start on. But I mean, if you think about it, um, for example, the beetroot. Um, We know that um, beetroot and some of these nitrate-rich vegetables are a very common feature, uh, like are a sort of fundamental part of um, the DASH diet, which is the dietary approaches to stop hypertension diet. Now, for some people, um, they're actually at an elevated risk of hypertension or preeclampsia. uh, which is a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, so there may be a particular benefits to some people in continuing having these nitrate rich foods and this really antioxidant heavy diet because um those compounds may also have this benefit of again sort of mitigating your risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So, yeah, I guess the good thing about all of these interventions that we're talking about the food based ones is that they their sort of safety in pregnancy is it's okay. Um, And there may actually be benefits in continuing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like the ginger, great for morning sickness. Also, um, awesome antioxidant throughout pregnancy as well, helping to offset some of those um, risk factors and complications that people might have. Well, um, thank you so much, Monique, for letting me pick your brain on all things food uh, and the two-week wait. I hope that this uh, provided... A lot of food for thought for our listeners. And uh, if we need to find you, where can we find you on Instagram? Um, you can find me on Instagram just under my name
1: and nutrition. So it's just Monique Cormac Nutrition, all always one word.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Monique. Thank you so
1: much for having me, Brett. Thank you.
0: We hope that you enjoyed that episode of the Up the Duff podcast and that you're feeling more supported on your fertility journey. If you haven't already done so, please leave us a review. It will help to spread the word and support many, many people on their fertility journey. A final shout out to this season's sponsor, ES Fertility. You can check them out at earsfertility.com. Until next time.